You are listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and on the web at cortezradio.ca. This is Manda O'Fox Gillespie with Cortez Currents, presenting A Window onto a Pandemic with Dutch virologist Dr. Eric Hockheimer. The opinions expressed in the following program are those of the people expressing them and not necessarily shared by Cortez Radio, its board, staff, volunteers, or membership. As the COVID-19 global pandemic unfolds, our world has become shrunk by fear and limited travel and worries over loved ones and livelihoods. But as the initial fears subside and it becomes clear that it may take a very, very long time, for the world return to a more familiar pace, countries that have taken other paths come more into focus. Much of the news are places like Sweden, which did not close primary schools or enforce strict social distancing. Another is Denmark, that has already sent its primary students back to school after curbing their death rate. Another is the Netherlands, which came closer to the Canadian approach of encouraging 1.5 meters of social distancing and working from home when possible, and closing schools, and the like, yet already that country is taking measures to give children and teenagers more freedoms, including reopening childcare centers and primary schools in early May, and secondary schools at the beginning of June. As well, outdoor sports games for youth are being reinstated. Today, Dr. Eric Hockheimer, a Dutch doctor with a specialist in viruses, talks a little bit more about how viruses work what we can learn from the Dutch experience with COVID-19, and discusses the importance of questioning the appropriate use of technology, such as intensive care units, during this crisis. It's a window into COVID-19 from the lens of a Dutch doctor. Thank you for being here today, Eric. I'll let you tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are. My name is Eric Hochheimer. I'm a general practitioner from the Netherlands. I was very involved in the 80s with the HIV epidemic. Then in the late 80s, I, I wrote a book about virology because through HIV, I became very interested in viruses. They are very smart little things. I wrote a book together with some other people. I was the main editor about viruses. So I know a little bit more about viruses than the average general practitioner. Then... In 2005, it was already much later, I changed my focus and I stopped my GP practice and started working for Doctors Without Borders, which I've been doing for the last 15 years. I recently retired in January, last January. And of course, also with Doctors Without Borders, I got quite involved in all kinds of viruses, Ebola, uh, tropical diseases, hepatitis B, and continued working with HIV, of course. So that's, in, in general, my, my background. I'm retired, but I still work for a couple of NGOs, especially for Médecins uh, du Monde, Doctors of the World, and we focus on all the non-insured people, mainly refugees from other countries who don't have a, a license to stay here yet, and uh, and my, my past experience, especially in, in Africa and Southeast Asia, is very helpful for that. Can you tell us a little bit more about what viruses are and what we know about how they work? 
A virus is a very small little thing and it needs a cell to live. Like that's the big difference between a bug, a bacteria or, or a mushroom or something like that and the viruses. So they, <clears throat> they need a cell to live in. They build themselves in, in the DNA of, or the RNA of a human cell. And then they use the factory of the human cell to reproduce themselves. So that's also why it's much more difficult to to fight or to battle with medication a, a virus because the bacteria is living on its own and you don't have to kill the cell where the virus lives in because when you attack the virus, you also attack the cell where it lives in. So that's one of the reasons why viruses were uh, were actually not that popular in medicine and, and only because of HIV in the 80s it became a real topic and by now some some medication is 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 present for for viruses but not that much so it's a very different story fighting a virus than fighting any other bug we learned a lot about viruses and a lot of, of things that we use now for all kind of viruses from like the, the SARS and, and the Ebola and stuff like that come from from the development that was initiated by HIV, like we can all the testing, the PCR, polymerase chain reaction testing, and a couple of medication uh, or kind of microscopic discoveries come from that time. So we know so much more, but yeah, we learned from the past for sure, but we don't know yet if we can <clears throat> implement that on this, uh, this one is, is very different in, in different ways. And we don't know so much about this virus. We know about coronaviruses. I mean, there are four or five coronaviruses that pop up every year. But this is a new one. And <clears throat> so we have to learn about this one to be more able to, to give it its rightful place. But viruses in itself are, are not only bad. We wouldn't be sitting here if there were no viruses built in our DNA. They have been useful in our development, but that's a different story. I like viruses. <laughs> Not particularly this one, but uh, yeah, sufficient to say that viruses, they, they you know, we, we are built, our cells are built from DNA and RNA. And some of the viruses have been very useful in the development of the human being. And they build in in our DNA, and they make proteins and whatever that that are useful for us, that helped us develop till the beings that we are now. Viruses is part of, of our world around us. If I give you a kiss on the mouth, there are maybe hundred thousand viruses going from my mouth to yours. So they're not all bad. And on the skin, if you just rub your skin, you it's the same. There's so many. They are friends in a way too, but that's a different story. Viruses, bacteria, fungi, they are definitely part of us. And uh, of course, and, and like in the United States, people are still deadly scared for anything. And we need, we need them in a way. We need also them to, to build up our immune system when we are young. So it's not good to, to raise your children and be totally afraid of any dirt they they come in touch with or whatever that's how life is like it or not <laughs> why is there so much fear around covid19 
I have the, I know there is a, is a lot of panic and it's also the media coverage, of course, which is very different than it was in the time of the Spanish uh, flu or the Mexican flu or whatever. So, and there is some reason to be afraid. I mean, we don't know much about the virus. A lot of old elderly people especially die of the virus, but there is a certain overre overreacting which is my personal opinion because other people say that's not true i mean we have reason to be scared and to do all the measures we have etc etc it's like it's much it's more highly contagious than sars much 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 more contagious than hiv it's much less deadly than sars it's much much less deadly than hiv it's a new virus in that way there's no immunity in the world yet for it and there is definitely the, the trap of sensationalism around um, COVID. No, it's not novel. These things happen from time to time. It happened with uh, most well-known example is the influenza, the Spanish flu, 1918 to 1920. And then an enormous amount of people died. The difference was that <clears throat> then, but in that time, especially young people died, young men. And now it's the old people who die, but so it happened then, and it happened every couple of years. It happens with influenza every five or 10 years, but then we, we have knowledge about influenza viruses and we make vaccines against it. So we kind of have that one more or less under control. But I mean, I'm not, I mean, there are many people in the world. I mean, not that I like Bill Gates so much, but he, he already uh, prophesied that five years ago that, that this was the next big threat for humanity, not the atom bomb, but a virus. And he actually drew a picture of a coronavirus, which was quite smart of him. It's happening and it's happening more now because we have a global economy, we're traveling so much more, etc., etc. This is all well known. So, yep, when we have had this, we can wait for the next one. How do you think the world will change as a result of this pandemic? I'm very excited to see what we learn from it and how it will be. I mean, I was also excited after 2008 when we got the, the economic crisis. Uh, we didn't learn that much from that, a little bit. Um, we can learn a lot from it. That's all in the future. And mostly it is what kind of ideas you have already. So if you are an anti-globalist, you hope that we learn that we are <clears throat> more locally oriented after this virus. And if you are anti-capitalist, you hope that the whole liberal system will collapse after this virus. So mainly the hopes are at the moment very much like an extrapolation of what you hope the world will be afterwards. We will see. It will change. Yeah. It's, it's a, quite a big thing. So things will change, but uh, I don't know. And nobody knows. At the moment, there is a, is a lot of polarization still. Tell us more what your life looks like in the Netherlands at this time. We are more, like the government is more listening to the experts, the scientists, and they follow their recommendations. The whole purpose is to contain it huh, at the moment, rather than totally eradicate it. I, I don't know how I would have done it different in this world. I mean, for instance, some crazy people say, the old people have to go anyway. Let's let's just not do any measurements. Let's just thing happen and then let the economy goes on. Well, I don't like that for starters, and it's not possible in this world. So even we 
we're having much less strict measures. Uh, we are advised to stay at home. We are advised not to be more than one and a half meter together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And for Holland, it works. The people are pretty obedient. But also, like we get reactions, of course, from France, Belgium, Germany, like we're much too slack, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But Sweden, Denmark, we do the same. Do the same as in Holland. So we try not to have actions based on panic or so-called gut feelings or we try to follow the, the models that the statisticians and virologists make and, and see how we contain it the best and also take into account psychology of the people and the economy because they're important too. So it's, it's a balancing act. The way the Dutch government is doing it is quite good. They have the support of the populations. They're very open about why they do it and what they do. There's a lot of explanation on that on the television. So so they also, of course, they do uh, you call the polls for if there's still support for it. And mostly, yeah, the support is around 60, 70, 80% still. And that has to that can change any moment. So it's week to week at the moment. So the idea is that they will lessen the the, the rules a bit uh, at the end of April, just to have the economy a little bit more air to breathe and stuff like that. But in general, the feeling is that going back to the way we lived before, that will either never happen again, or it will take one or two years. Um, we can go out, bike their bicycles, they can, the buses are driving, the trains are doing, the planes are not hardly, because all the countries are closed anyway. The, the thing is, keep one and a half meter distance. The restaurants are closed. Um, there might be that they open in a couple of weeks and then they are already all busy, like making their restaurants such that there's always one and a half meter between customers and tables are smaller, etc., etc. And let's say most of the shops are open, but there, there are also the supermarkets and like markets where you can buy building materials. But then they let people in just one by one and you have to... We can go in the shops so they don't have to deliver outside. Uh, the parks are open too. Schools are closed and there's a big discussion now about the, the, the small children because it's, it's, of course, very difficult to contain them at home. They are not the ones that get very sick. It's generally known and it's like progressive the knowledge we have about the COVID virus. But it looks like that children are hardly very ill with the COVID virus. But, and if you're in the same same house, same family, you can be together, but otherwise there needs to be a distance of one and a half meter. That rule doesn't count for kids. Kids can play outside in groups and they can go to the playground, but the parents have to keep one and a half meter distance. That's, the, that's how we do it. I don't know the epidemiological consequences of that, but that's, that's what we choose to do. What's your perspective on why COVID-19 has hit some countries so much harder? And is the reason that the Netherlands has been able to be a little bit more relaxed with their population because they have simply been more prepared? The biggest panic was about if we have enough space on the ICs. And we do have. So, uh, no, that was always, that was the big thing. We were not, not that prepared. Our health system is fine in general, but we were not prepared for this. And the big panic was always, and especially like 
on, on the news every evening, like number of people on the ICs is, is coming up and we were reaching the point that we have, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, but now it's, the containment is succeeded. So it seems like we are, we are fine with the ICs. But as in the beginning, there was this big discussion, not everybody can go on the IC and then we have to choose who can and who can't. But so slowly also people realized that like 50% of the people coming in the IC die, or 40%, but quite a, quite a lot. So if you are like 80 plus and you have any other diseases or 70 plus and you have co-diseases, don't go to the IC. You, you won't come out of it. If you come out of it alive, then the quality of your life will never be what it was before. Where it has opened up quite a bit discussion about quality of life and that it's a legitimate choice not to to go to the IC and try to fight the disease with oxygen in another way uh, because there's so many disadvantages of doing that. So not doing things because we can do things, but doing things because it's useful to do things, which is a a general problem in medicine. In many countries, like dying is such a taboo that people just do things because they can do and not thinking about what the consequences of their acts are. Yeah, I noticed that when I lived in Canada, I did live in Canada at some point, and in the United States, that, that was quite an issue. And so that it's always, euthanasia has been always an, uh, being something that, that has been in the Dutch public uh, discourse. So have you been familiar with that? And that comes up quite strong now. Like, is it not much better when you have hardly any chance to, to come alive or come with a good quality of life out of the hospital? Is it not much better to die just at home with your family around? Because once you're in the hospital, nobody can visit you, et cetera, et cetera. And you die alone in agony. But that's, that's not new for Holland's. Like I'm 71 and a smoker. So I decided not to go to the IC when I get it. And many of my friends are 70 plus, And I think all of them have made the same decision. That's totally respected by, by your GP or by, by the family, by any, anybody. I, I might go to the hospital to get some oxygen, but not to the, not in the IC. I mean, it's not a, a piece of cake, the IC. I mean, first, most people stay there for an average of three weeks. I mean, and your muscle mass and your lungs and whatever, all your organs, they deteriorate. And I, I, I kind of won't be able to build that up after I come out of it. But, you know, I, I, oxygen is like the limit. I, I Like Boris Johnson got oxygen when he was in the hospital. Well, the IC is, you'll be there a long time on the IC. Uh, they make you sleep. They have to turn you every four hours. Mostly you lay, you lay on your belly because your lungs are best expanded there. You get a lot of medication to keep you asleep. And everything gets artificially done. Your breathing, your feeding, whatever. You don't have any human contact because people that come there, they're like dressed like moonwalkers. And there's no physical contact, whatever. You lose a lot of your muscle space. It's your organs will go down. So you have to be in a pretty okay condition. And like if somebody is 70 years has diabetes and high blood pressure, no way he should go to the IC. If he's 80 and he has some kind of heart disease in his past, forget it. It's not, it's not the way you want to go or you want to wake up after three weeks. But then most people, I mean, and you get those success stories are like, 
The other day I saw somebody walking out of a hospital in America who was 102. She wasn't on the IC, but she needed some oxygen and they put her in the hospital because of her age. And she came out. I mean, I know some people, Prince Charles is 71, he got from England, he got COVID and he was four or five days sick and then he recovered like a normal flu. So that is fine. <laughs> you don't have to die with it, and especially not the kids. <laughs> don't panic about them. You still see all over the world, it's not only America first, but my country first, and America is really bad. I'm just worried about that country. But also other countries, like, you know, I still go to India every year, and what happens there, it's incredible. But the, yeah, the economy is, is, of course, we're going in a recession, sure. And, and I have no idea how we will come out of it. But also, like, you know, people don't buy clothes anymore. So the result is that they they just cancelled all the orders in, in India and Bangladesh and whatever. And there, the people don't have the safety net that we have in Holland. A great safety net for people who lose their job and people, nobody is not insured in Holland, etc., etc. And in Canada, it's a little bit the same, in the healthcare system at least. But in most other countries, it's not. In India, it's it's very big social problem at the moment. All the most people in India are day loaners. They get daily money and they're sent home. They just don't have a job anymore. They all go back to their villages. Uh, they try to to survive the best as they can. The COVID is not that prominent yet in India. Uh, neither in Africa. Of course, the scare is that it will come there and it will be a disaster. But they have more experience with epidemics than we have. Of course, in those countries, the health system and the social uh, safety net is, is much, much less than here. But at the moment, it didn't come there so much. But it will probably also go there. And all the, how do you call it? The slums. Yeah, that's the word. And then you have, you have so big problems in the world around this COVID. COVID virus, the refugee camps in Greece, all the refugee camps I've worked in, I mean, I, I don't like to, to visualize what happens there. For many countries, it's they're in a survival mode, and then this COVID comes, and I don't know, the, the people I, I know, they're more scared about their economic and social position than about the COVID virus. It's also bad luck, in a way, where it came first. But like in the United States, they were obviously too late with with uh, measures. And uh, like with HIV, HIV was very strong in Amsterdam, which was just bad luck because all the Americans came to Amsterdam to have a, the, the gay Americans to have a, a nice gay sex life. And so Amsterdam became a hotspot for HIV. And that's it's carnival and all these things like Lombardia. I think it's called that Regio in Italy became a hotspot for Corona. And then people didn't want to know the truth at that time. It could spread, etc., etc. So it's also, it's partly just chance and bad luck that it uh, happened there more. And then in Holland, we have a kind of a, the population is kind of obedient. And maybe in Italy, they're less or not their fault. It's just partly bad luck. And New York is the same. I mean, it's a big city. They all live together. Italy, there's a very social country. They mix a lot. And then you can talk about this insufficient. I see places of hospitals or whatever. That's part of it. But it's not the main reason. You can't blame them.
company in New York. And it's also important to, you know, we have, for instance, different rules for different places in Holland. You know, we, we don't say we close all the parks, but in the hotspots, yeah, we close some parks that are very busy. In the north, where there's not that much, there's more freedom. So, like, what you see is that there's something happens and suddenly, like, the government of India, for instance, says, we lock down the whole country uh, for two weeks. That's crazy. You have to be much more focused on what is happening where and make your decisions according that you have to differentiate and be sensible in that sense too. And especially like we also have homeless here and uninsured people and refugees and stuff like that. And that's a different story. But in general, yeah, population is this, people are amazed how kind everybody is to each other and how respectful and until now, and the fears, of course, if this goes on for a much longer period, that might change. But no, we're all in it together. That is basically the feeling in, in, in the Netherlands. But Holland for itself. I mean, <laughs> I mean, our government was the one in Europe who was the most strict with Italy and Spain when it came to loans. And uh, we're still Dutch. <laughs> From your perspective as a Dutch doctor who's worked around the world on viruses, what would be your advice to people on Cortez or other communities in Canada? You can't keep it out, that's for sure. But then the other thing is you you can learn from what is happening in the world and how it's it's going in other places and uh, what is the best way to tackle it. So in that way you have an advantage and you know what to do but don't close the islands. So see it as a, as a good opportunity that you have, that you can can be prepared much better than Italy was prepared or New York was prepared. That's, that's a big advantage. Yeah. So when people have symptoms, isolate, isolate them and make sure that there are enough tests on the island and people who can do the testing if it's needed and have the people prepared for when it comes, isolation space prepared for it comes. How uh, I don't know if you have a hospital there, probably not an IC. So how that, how people have to go to the to Vancouver, stuff like that. There's a lot to prepare, I tell you. And also open the discussion of like, do you want to go to the IC? Uh, is it is useful to go there? Talk about that, let people inform the people that it's not a, what do you call it, bed of roses to go there, that you have a choice, things like that, because it will come, don't worry. <laughs> you have been listening to Dr. Eric Hockheimer, a Dutch doctor and virus expert, talk about the Dutch response to COVID-19. This program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. I am Amanda O'Fox Gillespie with Cortez Currents on the web at cortezcurrents.ca. Thank you for listening. <laughs>